gang here, we have a grand privilege. We get to look at God's Word today. <clears throat> so please turn your Bibles or tap in your screens to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. All right. Uh, today we are continuing our sermon series. Uh, which is entitled Discerning the Good. And the subtitle is Gospel Transformation and Cultural Pressures. So we are addressing certain cultural pressures and how the Word of God speaks to those. The last two sermons have focused uh, on the good that God intends as He's made us in His image um, as both male and female, including the norms of what that looks like. And one significant aspect of our God-given maleness and femaleness is our sexuality. That is, our, our sexual desires and actions. Now, our culture takes a stance on human sexuality. And here, I believe, is a, I believe a fair summary of our culture's perspective on sexuality. Here it is. Nearly all sexual desire and consensual sexual activity is valid and good, and is to be allowed, affirmed, and celebrated. In our culture's words, love is love. And for most in our culture, that's a compelling view. Love is love. Who could argue with that? If two people love each other, why shouldn't they be together? Who can argue with love is love? Well, God's word does. In Leviticus 20.13, it says this, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. That's offensive to the world. And if we don't understand the greater context for God's design of human sexuality, it's going to be offensive to us too. And so... To understand God's design, God's perspective on human sexuality, we're going to start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. <laughs> it is true, though. We're going to read Genesis 2, verses 20 through 25, and we are going to pray for God's help as we study his word. The title of this sermon is Homosexuality, which, again, is, it is the poster child of deviations from God's design. It's not, it's not the only one, but it is one that our culture celebrates, and so that's why, um, hence, the, hence the title of this sermon. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to jump into God's word here and see what God has to say about us. We're going to start in the second half of verse 20 and read through the end of verse 25. Friends, these are God's very words. It says, But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. And the rib, oh, sorry. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he took one of his ribs and closed up its, sorry, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray for God's help. Lord, we need your help as we consider your word. We need to hear from you. We need to hear the good design that you have made for our sexuality. Lord, I pray that you give us humility right now. I pray that you would help us submit to your word. And Lord, give us joy in it. Give us a picture of the beauty of what you have made us for. And we ask this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to jump right in pretty quickly here. We're going to walk through our structure today. We're going to walk through three points on human sexuality. And then we're going to close with some um, particular application. So here's our roadmap. We're going to look at the design for our sexuality. And then the distortion of our sexuality. And then finally, the destination of our sexuality. As a heads up, we're going to spend a lot more time on point one uh, than on the other two, so don't be afraid that it's going to be a four-hour sermon. <laughs> but it's, it's best to spend time on the true form of what God has designed. I think about, I worked at Dairy Queen. That was my first real job. And when we get payment, we were supposed to check the bills you know, especially if they were like $20 or over, right? We don't want people counterfeiting us. When you get a bill that doesn't look real, you just know. I had, my, 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 my boss said she was given something that felt a little small, just something fell off, and she had to do the marker test to make sure, like, yeah, okay, look, it turned, it's black, it didn't turn brown. You know, there's no watermark here. It wasn't hard to identify the fake, the counterfeit, money when, when you already understand and know the real genuine article well. And so we are going to spend time looking at the genuine article of God's design for human sexuality. And then it'll be very easy to see how everything else just falls short of that. So we are going to jump right in. Point one, the design for our sexuality. Let me sum up God's design for human sexuality this way. Here it is. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the one flesh covenant of marriage. That is a loaded sentence. We're going to break it down one piece at a time. First, marriage is a covenant. Most obviously, it is a covenant between the two spouses. Verse 24 in our passage today speaks of a man leaving his father and his mother and holding fast to his wife, to hold fast is to embrace, to, to not let go, to cling to. This holding fast looks like Ruth uh, clinging to her mother-in-law, Naomi, when Ruth's husband died. Ruth's sister-in-law decided to turn back to her own people rather than go back to Israel with Naomi, but Ruth does something different. It says that her sister kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
Ruth stuck it out with Naomi. She committed herself to the same fate as Naomi, claiming Naomi's home as her home and Naomi's God as her God. That's what holding fast looks like. It's saying, I'm in this for the long haul and nothing is going to separate us. And so marriage, this covenant between a husband and a wife, is to be marked by the sort of committed endurance that doesn't give up or look for a way out. The covenant of marriage is one that holds fast. But this covenant isn't just between a husband and a wife. This covenant is both initiated and enacted by God. Note in verse 22 of our passage, after God creates the woman, he then brings her to the man. Notice God's active part in bringing the woman and the man together. This covenantal relationship, this marriage, is God's initiative, and it is God's idea. Neither the man nor the woman came up with the idea for marriage. It is not a human invention. It is God's. And not only did God invent and initiate this idea, he actually enacts it. He makes it happen. Jesus clarifies this for us in Matthew 19. He gets asked about the lawfulness of divorce. And when he responds, he speaks as marriage in the same terms as Genesis 2. He speaks as that of that as what God has joined together. God joined together. Not just two people joining together. God, active party, taking these two people and joining them. You see, in marriage, God himself joins a husband and a wife together in a lifelong covenantal commitment. Marriage is nothing less than the God-ordained, hand-picked union between two people for the rest of their lives. So this marriage covenant is created by God. It's lived out by the spouses. But not just any spouses. No, here's another mark of marriage. This marriage covenant is specifically between one man and one woman. Let's take a step back for just a moment. Okay, When God planned out his creation... He had all faculties at his disposal. He, he could have done, done whatever he wanted. Uh, he could have made creation so that no new life ever occurred. He could have done that. Uh, he could have just made a set number of creatures who worshipped him for eternity and never made more creatures. For instance, the angels are like that as far as we understand. Right? God made them. I don't know if he's, I don't think he's making any more. I don't think they make more on their own, but they live forever and they worship him. And that's good. And that gives God glory. But that isn't how God made this world. He decided that his creatures, plants and animals and even bacterial microbes, would procreate. He decided to make creatures that would make even more creatures and, and, and by so doing reflect the life-giving character of God. And so we have cell multiplication and tree saplings and, and litters of kittens, all designed to herald the creative and life-giving genius of a good God. And so humans, who have a distinct privilege in God's created order as those who bear his image, 
more than anything else in all of creation, even the angels, for as cool as they are and as little as we understand about them, as powerful as they are, they don't bear God's image like we do. That's humbling. That's a privilege. And so it makes sense that this, that us, the crown of God's creation, that it makes sense for us to share in the privilege of reflecting God's character through creating life. That is a part of God's design. He gets glory when those made in his image make life just as he made life, even just with a word. Now, in order to accomplish that, again, God could have decided to use any of the faculties at his disposal, which is anything. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He could have made it so there was only one sex in humanity. That could have worked. Could have made it so that humans reproduce either homosexually, just two of the same kind come together, and, and that's how children are made. Or maybe asexually. For instance, uh, some starfish can do that, which is weird. Uh, but they reproduce without a mate. So some creatures, like God has proven, hey, I could have done it this way. Could have made that happen. But he doesn't do that. He could have gone the opposite and made more than two sexes. He could have made multiple sexes and lots of different versions and varieties. He could have made it so that a select group of people would be needed to make new life. But instead, God doesn't do that. He does something very specific and very beautiful. He decided to create two distinct and complementary sexes in the human race, and neither would be able to create offspring without the other. Why did God do it that way? He didn't have to, so why did he? Well, we're going to answer that question a little more fully later in the sermon. But at least for now, we can see at least one thing in the beauty of this design. God is triune. He is one God and yet three persons who are equal in dignity and yet distinct in their roles. And so God decided to make humans, his image bearers, into two distinct and sexually complementary versions, each having equal dignity and yet different roles in the sexual and procreative realms. It's no mistake that when only the male version and the female version of mankind come together, can they fulfill, only when together, can they fulfill the command that God gave them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They can't do it alone. It's not a mistake. There's more to be said about the reason God made two sexes, but we'll carry on for now. We've spent some time talking about procreation. Let me be clear. That is not all that marriage or sex are built for. Yes, creating new life reflects the life-giving character of God. And yes, God has made it so only a man and a woman fit together in distinct and complementary ways in order to create offspring. And yes, God intends for this life-giving act to happen within the confines of marriage. But sex and sexual intimacy within marriage are designed for more than just childbearing. They're designed as a gift from God that's to be enjoyed. Note in verse 25 that it says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Friends, outside the context of marriage, nakedness is a shameful thing. There's a reason people have nightmares, and more than just one person, 
about being naked in public, right? It's not a fun dream. You're trying to find out how to get yourself out of the shame of being exposed. I thought I might have been the only one who did that. And I heard about it in a movie. I was like, I'm not the only one who does that. On a more serious note, there's a reason that during the Roman Empire, crucified criminals were hung naked on a cross. Because to expose someone's nakedness is to shame and dehumanize them. But within the context of marriage, within the covenant commitment to love, care, and serve one another, nakedness is the cause for zero shame. It's an environment of trust, commitment, love, and faithfulness. But beyond not just being shameful, it's not just not negative, it's fine, it's permissible. No, nakedness and sexual intimacy in marriage is a very good thing. God made his creation good, and when he made man and woman, he called that very good. And that covers every aspect of humanness, including sexuality. Adam, for one, agreed with God on this. He rejoiced when he was presented with his complimentary, naked, beautiful wife. He joyfully declares, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I've heard it said he named her, whoa, man. <laughs> not too far off, maybe not quite. But the relationship between the words man and woman, they sound alike. That exists in the Hebrew too. They are, it's of the same kind, but a little different. And I like that difference. It's not only Adam who's jazzed about God's design here. That didn't get lost when the fall happened. Scripture celebrates and enjoys the sweetness of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. Friends, the Song of Solomon, which is an entire book in the Bible, is devoted to enjoying and celebrating and beautifully portraying the all-consuming love that finds its fulfillment in marriage. In this book, the man and the woman praise each other with creative poetry, describing their delight in the other. Listen to what the woman says of her lover. She says this, My beloved, my beloved sorry, is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Sorry, but tall, dark, and handsome fits the description here. <laughs> His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. That's beautiful. <laughs> the woman takes great delight in her lover, including his physical form, and she boasts of his handsome and strong stature to others. Here's what the man has to say about his lover. He doesn't talk to others about her. He talks to her. There's something unique about that. He says, how beautiful and pleasant are you, oh, loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, 
and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. Friends, this is in the Bible. (laughs) This is good. It's God's design. The man is seriously infatuated with his woman. They are really into each other, and that is a good thing. It's made by God. It's celebrated by Scripture. And you know what? None of those above descriptions have anything to do with making children. The woman's breasts that the man finds so much enjoyment in are not used for making babies, and yet they are a source of his delight in her. That's good. That's created. That right there, that's created by God. It's celebrated. He put it in the Bible so we know this is worth celebrating. Okay. Sex and sexual intimacy, these are invented by God. They are loaded with delights, and they are to be enjoyed as a beautiful gift from God within the covenant of marriage. One final note on God's design of our sexuality. Sex within marriage is just one part of the greater union and love between a husband and a wife. Genesis 2.24 says that the husband and his wife shall become one flesh. From a physical standpoint, that has real significance. Sexual intercourse within marriage is the most vulnerable, intimate, and unifying physical act designed by God. There is a real physical sense in which a husband and wife become one flesh when they enjoy sexual intimacy. And beyond the physical, though, there is a relational oneness and unity found in marital love. Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7 says that love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Friends, the unifying love that God intends between a man and a wife is to be marked by a fierce passion and commitment to one another. That even the greatest trials in life cannot undo it. Many waters cannot drown it. God made us sexual creatures. He did it on purpose. And he made sex within marriage good. It's a gift from him that's to be enjoyed within the boundaries that he's given it, namely that that secure and safe and lifelong commitment of a man and a woman bound together through the one flesh covenant of marriage. But unfortunately, we ruin sex through our sin. And we do so by removing the boundaries that God put in place for it. That brings us to our second point, the distortion of our sexuality. In our sin, we distort and sour God's intent for sex and sexuality by removing the good boundaries God has given it. Remember what the scriptures say, what we just read, that that love's flashes are flashes of fire. Friends, fire is a very powerful source. When kept in appropriate boundaries, it's very useful like the warmth of a fire in a furnace that keeps you warm during the winter and and safe from frostbite. 
like the, the light of a fire and a lantern that, that gives you light and keeps you safe from the darkness that would otherwise keep you stumbling and, and tripping in the night. Or the heat of a fire in a wood-burning stove contained in order to heat the food you need to eat. So you kill off all the bad bacteria and you can eat and then live. But this same fire, when bound, when not bound, sorry, proves disastrous. Uncontrolled, it consumes plants, homes, and lives. The force that brings enjoyment and, and comfort and life when bounded within safe limits, this same force when unbounded brings despair and distress and even death. So it is with sexual love. Love is fire. <laughs> Depending on the boundaries, sexual intimacy can either bring forth life or it can bring death. And unfortunately, our culture's stance on human sexuality is to have as few boundaries as possible. But this view will not hold up because it falls short of God's design for human sexuality. Consider two boundaries our culture removes in its definition of sexual intimacy. First, there's the removal of marriage as a boundary. Sexual relationships are viewed like an at-will employment, right? Either party can end the agreement at any time for any reason. But while the world sees that as liberating, go enjoy yourself. It's okay. If it doesn't work, try something else. Go to someone new. While that seems liberating, it's really enslaving. Sex, instead of acting as a servant to strengthen and sweeten lifelong committed marriages now becomes a master over us, determining our worth and our value by our sexual prowess or desirability. It becomes the judge of how valuable we are. An unrestrained sexual desire is the basis for the entire porn industry where men, women and men are objectified and dehumanized into mere images for someone else's pleasure. Their dignity is stripped away instead of it being relished as an image bearer of God. Children born to those who break up or who get divorced suffer the lifelong consequences of experiencing a family dynamic that has a disunity in it that God never intended and that no child should have to endure. And those who have multiple sexual partners put themselves at increased risks of sexually transmitted diseases. And then sex, instead of bringing life, sometimes even brings death. Our culture removes the boundary, the good boundary of marriage from the definition of human sexuality. But another one of the boundaries that it removes is the prescribed boundary of sex between one man and one woman. Our culture has believed the lie that nearly all sexual desire and consensual activity is valid and good. And if it's valid and good, then let's celebrate it. Let's be joyful about it. Why not? If it is good, you should celebrate it. It approves of and celebrates sexual intimacy between, for instance, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. But this too, my friends, causes issues. 
Men who commit homosexual acts with other men often put themselves at much higher risks of sexual diseases. Kids who are raised in households where there are no longer one mom and one dad, but allegedly two moms or two dads or two moms and a dad or what have you, are no longer in the form and the relationship that God has intended in those relationships. And if God's prescribed boundary of sex isn't between one man and one woman, then what is the standard? How do we determine that? If you follow the logic of love is love, is love is love, period, that's it, then, then who is to say that a person can't be sexually intimate with a close blood relative? Or, or who is who, to judge if someone wants to have multiple sexual partners uh, simultaneously? Or who's to say that an adult can't have a sexual relationship with a child? When you remove the boundaries that God gives, then the logic of that thought process leads to promoting things like incest and polygamy and pedophilia. Now note, I'm not saying that our culture, who abides by this belief, by its beliefs rather, currently promotes these things. Okay, I'm not saying that it necessarily promotes those right now. I am saying that the logic of their arguments, that love is love, you do you in the sexual realm, doesn't provide a convincing answer to why these other forms of sexual expression are wrong. But beyond the personal and societal issues, Beside the, the, the horizontal pieces, if you will, of, of our culture's perspective of sexuality, that perspective, love is love, simply just falls short of who we're designed to be. Romans 1, 26 through 28, summarizes God's response to those who deviate from his good design for sex. It says this, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, when we deviate from God's design for our sexuality, we give up the natural, fitting, normal relations that God intends and instead become consumed with passions that are contrary to nature. They don't make sense. They don't fit together. And what is the end result? It's that God gives us up to what? A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What our culture celebrates as sexual liberty is no liberty at all. It's the path to a debased mind, a spoiled experience, and the degradation of humans created in the image of God. 
our culture removes the boundaries that God has put in place, thinking it will find freedom from his seemingly restrictive commands, but instead it leads to lifelessness and it falls short of who we're designed to be. Our sexuality is made, defined, and bounded by God, and it's a part of who God made us to be, and that design is good. But our sexuality does not end with us. Rather, it points beyond us. And that leads us to our third point, the destination of our sexuality. Ultimately, human sexuality is a means to an even greater end. And while sex is created by God as a good gift to be enjoyed in the right context, it's not ultimately an end in itself. Rather, as the most expressive act of care and affection and delight within marriage, it foreshadows the care and affection and delight of an even greater marriage. What is this greater marriage? Well, we read about it in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. It says here, Quoting Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The ultimate reason God made the male and female sex, and the ultimate reason that God made marriage The one flesh union between a woman and a man was to create a living picture of the union between Christ and the church. Jesus is the ultimate husband, the perfect head. As the savior of the world, he is the embodiment of manliness, of strength, of love, of care, and of sacrifice. And who is his bride? It's the church the gathering of God's people. And though this bride is not lovely in and of herself, Christ makes her beautiful. Listen to how Christ loves and treats his bride from Ephesians 5, just a few verses before what we just read. It says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ sets apart, cleanses, and presents his bride as holy to himself. How does he do that? He does so by dying for his bride. That's the kind of husband Jesus is. He's the husband who gives up his life so that we have life. Friends, if you have never seen Jesus as the greatest bridegroom who came to redeem his guilty bride, I encourage you to take a fresh look at Jesus today. In our sin and offenses against God, we have become guilty and ugly and unfit for relationship with God. But Christ on the cross sheds his blood washes us with it and makes us white as snow if we believe in him. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, I encourage you to do so today. He is a faithful bridegroom. He will not let you down. He will be faithful to you. And trust yourself to him who shows the most sacrificial 
and amazing love that's ever been shown. Find refuge in him, find life in him, repent of your sins, and trust in his righteousness and death alone as the basis for your nearness to him and your nearness to God. I pray you do that today. Human marriage and human sexuality point ultimately to a glorious day when Christ finally presents his bride to himself, truly spotless of any sin, not just justified, declared righteous, but made righteous, clean of all sin, perfect and beautiful and glorious. God created marriage and human sexuality as a picture of the grand and eternal story of Christ and the church being united as one for all of eternity. This is God's design for sexuality, and it is very good. Anything that deviates from God's design of sex and marriage fails to serve its purpose in heralding the marriage of Christ and the church. No other human relationship pictures it like that. And that is why God has made us male and female and made us sexual creatures. Friends, these are big truths, and they are, <laughs> they are loaded with application. Um, we are going to limit ourselves to three. First, we uphold marriage. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. If we're married, that means we strive toward fidelity in our marriages. We seek to be an attractive picture of how Christ and the church enjoy a loving and united relationship. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Cherish her, sacrifice for her, lead her, care for her. And wives, submit to your husband as the church does to Christ. Respect him, honor him, follow him, help him. If our marriages aren't beautiful to those who are around us, it will be hard for us to be good ambassadors for Christ. And whether or not we're married, we respect and honor the boundaries that God has given sex. So we uphold the purity and unity of Christ and the church by refraining from any sexual activity or thought that lies outside the bounds that God has given it. And by so doing, we hold in honor marriage and hence the unity of Christ and the church. We also submit ourselves to what scripture teaches us about sexuality and not what the culture does. For instance, though our culture celebrates homosexuality as a valid and good expression, we agree with God's word that this is against nature and in fact is an abomination to God. Those are his words. And though our culture approves and affirm what they call gay marriage, we submit ourselves to God's word when he defines marriage as only between a man and a woman. Because no other union is really marriage because no other union points to Christ and the church. You don't have the church and the church or Christ and Christ. It is Christ and the church.
So we submit ourselves to God's word. So apart from upholding marriage, we also, secondly, engage our culture with humility. This balances the first application. Yes, homosexual thoughts and acts are an abomination to God. But so is our pride. So is our prejudice. So is our self-righteous attitude that subtly thinks that we are better than other people, including those in our culture. Friends, your pride kept you from God. Your prejudice against your neighbor beckoned God's wrath against you. Your self-righteous attitude led you to nothing but condemnation. If we ever start thinking that we're better than other sinners, we have lost eye of the gospel. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. That's us. So while we speak the truth, and we do speak the truth, We also do it in love and in humility. And while we navigate cultural issues of homosexuality and other deviations from God's design for human sexuality, as we figure out what to say and how to address and how to maybe challenge at times or inform, we do so with a reminder that we are saved by nothing but grace alone. We have to keep that in front of us. Final application. We hold fast to the hope of redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 holds out hope for every single one of us. Paul speaks of the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lists off a variety of such, such sinners like the sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, the greedy, drunkards, and others. And he reiterates that these will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. Don't just think you can go on in this lifestyle and be okay with God. But then in verse 11, he says this. After listing all these different kinds of sinners, he says, such were some of you. But you, I love it. Someone said, but yes, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Friends, we were right there in that list. We were those enslaved to sin, the sin that barred us from inheriting eternal life. But then we were cleaned up We were set apart and we were declared righteous in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. And so friends, the only hope for redemption and the only hope for change comes through the atoning work of Christ and the life-giving power of the Spirit. That's our only hope. That is the world's only hope. So if you struggle with homosexual thoughts or temptations or desires or heterosexual temptations. <laughs> know, if you have Christ dwelling within you, that the, the, the Spirit empowers you to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. He has sufficient power. And if you are guilty 
of sexual sin, whether that's sins of the mind or of the eyes or of the body, know that if you're in Christ, these have been paid for in full at the cross of Christ. We all find hope not in our holiness or our personal faithfulness or in us getting it right, but in the toning blood of Christ that washes us white as snow. God created us as sexual creatures, and the fulfillment of these desires finds its proper place within marriage. But human marriage exists only as a dim reflection of the glorious marriage between Christ and the church. That's the only marriage that lasts for eternity. Ray Ortland said in one of his books, I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't write it down, he says, every happy marriage whispers its doom and proclaims the victory of Christ. That's true. That's where it's all headed. All of history approaches the day when those who have been purified by the blood of the Lamb sing praises as his spotless bride. So I want to close by listening to that cheerful celebration recorded in Revelation 19. This celebration that will resound for all of eternity says this, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for pursuing us in love. Thank you for your care, your affection, your attention, your love, your sacrifice, your commitment, and your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for the picture of human sexuality and marriage that points to Christ and the church. And thank you for Christ, who is the embodiment of everything good and who has made us his own, cherished and loved for eternity. It is his name that we revel in, and it is his name that we glorify. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing in response. Mm-hmm.